You're listening to the Inner Field Trip Podcast, designed to help highly sensitive people and deep feelers explore unconscious biases so they protect their energy, stand on the side of justice, and become better ancestors. My name is Lisa Renee Hall, your host and tour guide. In this episode, we are going to look at the best of the previous 12 episodes. I'm going to highlight some of my favorite moments from the first 12 episodes in the Inner Field Trip podcast. I had a chance to be in conversation with people I admire, individuals who think deeply, who feel deeply, people who model what it means to live a contemplative and introspective lifestyle. What I've loved is that beyond their social and ethnic and biological identities, each guest highlighted their complex and nuanced ancestry. That as the Borg Queen said to Seven of Nine in an episode of Star Trek Voyager, and believe me, if I can pull in any lessons from Star Trek into anything I do, I will. And this is one of those moments. And this is what the Borg Queen said to Seven of Nine. You are unique. In other words, each guest I interviewed shared a uniqueness in their ancestry, their experience, and wisdom that just cannot be duplicated. And we talked about quite a number of things, including anger, land acknowledgments, raising anti-oppressive children, the power of naming, coalition building, queasy stomachs that happen when you're exploring biases, grief, contempt, mental wellness, emotional tax, and holding one's boundaries. All these topics are necessary when trying to do the inner work in a contemplative, reflective, and introspective way. What I will do is I'm going to introduce each guest and the episode they appeared in. It will not be in chronological order. I'm going to share a little bit about what the episode was and then bring in the highlight from that conversation. And I invite you to go to www.innerfieldtrip.com, click on the menu item called Episodes, and there you'll find all the episodes from 1 to 12. I'm going to start off with Episode 4, featuring Carlin Purcell, a certified emotional intelligence and neural life coach. She shared a concept called emotional tax, which is the cost that Black, Indigenous, and people of color, or BIPOC for short, pay with their mental wellness when navigating work in corporate spaces. That phrasing, emotional tax, was coined by Catalyst, a global nonprofit working with some of the world's most powerful CEOs and leading companies to build workplaces that work for women. And it caught on with the media here in Canada, so much so that Carlin was featured on the front page of one of our dailies. When I asked Carlin about the ways we can stumble bravely, even in toxic spaces, here's what she had to say. Stumbling teaches you about the deepest parts of yourself that has been either hidden from you, it could be because of oppression or lack of your inability to sit with yourself because we talked about how hard it is to ride that emotional wave of change. Stumbling is where we gain our strength. And actually stumbling 
is where we get to decide how we want to take up space in the world. Because sometimes you have to get knocked off where you are in order for you to understand that this is bad for your posture. This is not serving you. But you've just gotten comfortable where you stand in. So you've convinced yourself that this is your reality and this is the only way you can get what you want out of life. So I think stumbling is so necessary because stumbling reintroduces us to our highest selves. Because when you're down on that ground and you can see the dirt, you stumble, however you stumble, if that stumble took you right to the ground, you get to observe where you are. You get to look at that dirt. You get to look at behind you. Or if you're on your back, look up on top. And the only thing you can do it go from there is up. So stumbling teaches you, how do you want to get up? Who do you want to get up as? You get to choose. And I don't know if people realize the beauty they don't. They and don't. the privilege of stumbling. Because yes. it teaches you so much about yourself. So I'm a stumbler. <laughs> I, I stumble all I, the time. I just love that advice from Carlin and how she says she's a stumbler. A stumbler, baby. Again, that was Carlin Purcell featured in episode four. I kicked off the Inner Field Trip podcast sharing what it is all about in episode one. The last time I hosted a podcast was back in 2006. And so I was celebrating the return to hosting a podcast and I was pretty excited. I shared how going on my own inner field trip helped me to reclaim my sensitivities and why this is so utterly important when trying to do the work of exploring your biases. Listen in. I help highly sensitive people and deep feelers, people with gentle, tender, quiet personalities, explore unconscious biases in a way that protects their energy. You see, there's a lot of individuals out there who can't go to marches either because of distance or disability. There are people out there who become overstimulated very easily by loud sounds and shouts and crowds. And what I've noticed is that People will withdraw from the work of activism and advocacy, saying that they're feeling overwhelmed and anxious, that their nervous system is going haywire. And in my own work, as I decolonized and deconstructed the Lisa Renee that people said I was supposed to be based on my skin color, my gender, my nationality, my language spoken, and on and on and on I can go. That after I went through the tough work of waking before 5 a.m. for 365 consecutive days, where I started the process to write a book of fiction, but then it turned into a process to develop the character of me, Lisa. And in that process, I discovered that my sensitivities is actually a very good thing and that it had been diminished over the years, not because there was something wrong with me, but because the world doesn't know how to operate when people lead from a place of empathy, compassion, and of course, sensitivities. So I now work with sensitives and deep feelers so that they understand that what they're feeling when they watch yet another video of a person of African descent, a Black person being harmed by law enforcement, that the feeling of disgust that they're feeling that causes them to withdraw to hide is actually based on not just their emotions, but it's based on being so overstimulated that 
it causes pain within their nervous system. And the more that we can reclaim our sensitivities, the more we can stand on the side of justice. And that's why it's so important for highly sensitive people and deep feelers to protect their energy because you can't enter every fight. You can't stand up for every cause. You can't fight against every injustice. But if each of us take a particular interest in a small area of injustice, then it's those small actions together that helps us to take down a system of oppression, which marginalizes people based on nothing more than their social and biological identities. Let's move to episode five, featuring Andrea J. Lee, who's an author, futurist, and coach. Andrea captured what anger can tell us and how we can avoid using anger rooted in abuse. Andrea talks about the subtle and covert ways abuse shows up and why we need to take notice of this when fighting for justice. Listen in. I think that in society, in mainstream culture, we have this story that abuse is something that only happens in small pockets, like on some island far, far away to other people. And the most common reaction people have to that anger video that I put out is like, I can't believe it. You seem so kind and soft-spoken. And, and so that surprise and that reaction, I think, is at the heart of what I am trying to get out in the world, but sort of that the inner reason. I think that as humans, we can't help but always be somehow, like you like to say, the perfect word, stumbling with our power in the use of it towards each other, with each other, at each other. So coaches, how might we be being like abusive or like in between the lines, angry and taking things out on people around us, oppressive behavior and so on? It's not an inquiry that I think should surprise us. I think it's an inquiry that we need to embrace. So to be a little bit concrete, I was talking to a coach the other day who talked about the chagrin they had when they realized that they had been really a bully to their virtual assistant. They hadn't realized it, but they had. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I remember when Thomas Leonard passed away when the whole schmoggle of what's going to happen now was happening, there were legal proceedings that occurred that were absolutely violent and did not take care of the people involved, myself included. And when we walk around in the world thinking, oh, there's no abuse of power happening, I'm just having my regular day, and here's my coffee, and here's my cell phone, and so we're not interrogating those things to ask. Where is the oppression? Where is the violence? Where is the abuse? We have our eyes half shut or more. So that's the connection. It may seem like it's remote, but for me, it's very present in every action that I take. Every time that I coach someone and ask them, well, your decision about how you treat that client, where's the oppression in that? Where's the justice in that? Where's the humanity in that? Again, you can listen to episode five in its entirety. Now, here's the reality. I could not support hundreds and hundreds of patrons on their inner field trip without support. Oni Marchbanks, Annika Komen, 
Miriam Hall, no relation as far as we can tell, and Rachel New, who are mentor coaches in the inner field trip community, have assisted me in some of the duties in supporting all those patrons in my community on Patreon. I interviewed all four in episode eight, and there were so many gems as we talked about the spiritual, emotional, and physical inks you will go through exploring your biases. I'm highlighting this particular exchange that took place between Miriam, Rachel, Annika, and Oni. Listen in. I think that's really, it's essential that we work together because each of us are going to have time when we just feel like, is this ever going to change? Or how is it going to change? Or is it ever going to be done? And and need each other to pull up. And sometimes I'm that person for someone else. And sometimes someone is that for me. So this way that you run a community, Lisa, that you've really, you've trained us and we've worked together as a community. I always feel so buoyed after our conversations, including this one. And also there's still that grief. But that essential quality in the community that's really shining right now where people are holding each other up and not essentializing, like you had this experience, ergo, you are racist, ergo, that's it. Not condemning our world, our society, and not condemning each other. And that transformative justice that Rachel was speaking of, that comes so clean in the contemplative process while also being messy. <laughs> Just really the doing it together. I just really thank all of you for doing this together with me and with each other and with the patrons and the community and all the work you do. When you're in an organization, you're in a hierarchy. There's inherently going to be that dominance dynamic inherently involved in that. And if you want to change things, we have to make the rising together irresistible. We have to address the fact that under hierarchy, the onus tends to be on those at the lower end of things to take the greatest amount of accountability with the least amount of power. And we can't change things that way. We need the leaders to take responsibility for being the examples for how to take accountability and transform our relationship to that. I love what you just said, Rachel, like make it irresistible, make it sexy, make it fun, make it creative, bring art as Oni and I do bring music and dance. And I know without a doubt, speaking as a white woman, the place where whiteness occupied my being as I metabolize that, as I heal that, I get to find more of who is Annika essentially who's Annika as a soul, what's important to me. And that is priceless. That's worth every single heartbreak or loss or moment of confusion to continue to find that ground of myself that is actually shared with Oni, Rachel, Lisa, Miriam, all of y'all. It's a place where we can stand on and actually move this not so pipe dream of a dream forward, that there'd be liberation for us all. Make the rising together irresistible. Thank you so much, Rachel. I'm going to use that. Thank you. Going forward, if a person comes to me and says, I'm done, I've got these tools, I am aware of what I need to do, I will say to them, done is not a season. 
Remember, there's summer, winter, spring, and fall, due season, D-O, D-U-E, not D-O-N-E. So you don't get to be done because it's, remember, and I often remind individuals that it's a journey. It's a lifestyle. It's for the rest of your life. If you are connecting with my liberation and our liberation is connected together in solidarity, then we're not done. And even when we rest on this side, I'll see you on the other side. Drinking margaritas in a rocking chair, right? <laughs> right, absolutely. We've got a plan, you got a date. <laughs> We're continuing into the afterlife. <laughs> That's the type of exchange the five of us have every time we meet over Zoom. It's nourishing and educational and so much fun. I trust that you have a community you can rely on to nurture your deep thoughts. And that was episode eight. Let's move to episode two, featuring Tiffany M. Jewell, best-selling author of This Book is Anti-Racist. She's also an educator and has taught students mainly in Montessori schools. Tiffany made an impassioned plea for teachers to do their inner work so that their classrooms are safe for Black children. I'm sharing a clip where Tiffany highlights where the origins of our biases come from when it comes to the over-surveillance of Black students in schools. Listen in. We go to schools to be educated, to learn, and to grow. And schools are supposed to be a place where we like feel physically safe, where we have the courage to grow and to learn. And then that doesn't happen for everybody. There's this great myth that Black folks don't experience pain, that Black folks have different bodies where we grow different ways and faster and become adults faster. And this goes way back to the justification of having enslaved children do the same work as adults and to not just the work, but also to like for white adults to dominate young Black bodies. And we, this happens in schools when I'm, I think of kind of different teaching methods where the adults are in charge. They put themselves in charge of like making sure kids stand in line or are tracking them in their eyes. And any time a Black child maybe is, isn't tracking an adult in their eyes, they're seen as disruptive and they're seen as a problem and an antagonistic. And white children they get kind of that pass, that slide. They're like, oh, maybe they're tired or they're having a hard day. This adultification just keeps pushing our littlest, our youngest, our most vulnerable population into spaces that are made for adults, not made for them. I think of juvenile detention centers, and I don't have the statistics right off me, but how they are like so predominantly overwhelmed with Black and Brown and Indigenous children or the rates of preschoolers being sent to detention and out-of-school suspension are so high. And it's not the same for white kids. I was in a recent school committee meeting and it was so... One of my former students was talking about the detention rate in our local district, which is like a white liberal, like, hey, we're doing okay, aren't we? And this student, this high schooler was like, here are the statistics from her own district. And it was so amazing to have her rattle that off. And it was also like incredibly disheartening because our student population is continuing to grow more Black and more Brown. 
and the adults are not believing them to be children. So there's like that whole in schools they're like, oh, I'm not, I don't need to teach them because they already know these things. There's also like the adults claiming to be afraid of children. And so they call the police to schools to handle young children for not handing in a cell phone or talking back to them. It's an issue that is not often talked about in educator spaces. Like I think of right now, so many teachers are getting ready to go back to school, whether it's virtually or in person. And I'm pretty certain, like at least in my district, nobody's doing any professional development or learning the adultification, especially like those preschool and kindergarten teachers. Like they are the first ones on the line, right? Who can like change the perception, be like their children, all children are children, but that's not happening. That was Tiffany M. Jewell, best-selling author of This Book is Anti-Racist, and she was featured in episode two. Now, let's turn our attention to Asha Frost, indigenous medicine woman. She was featured in episode six. We spoke about indigenous medicine tools and how settlers can use them as a source of healing without appropriation. I then asked Asha about land acknowledgments. This is where people say which indigenous nations' lands they live on. Here are Asha's thoughts on this. Land acknowledgements, they're so popular now, right? So I just think like that's a start. It's a start. But I don't know if we're embodying it, to be honest. I think we're using it as words. And I think the embodiment, that's why I think as you spoke about the body, like even embodying like what does it mean when you're speaking these words? I'm in Anishinaabe land. What does that mean? How do you, how does that feel when you speak that through your heart? How does it feel when you speak that through your feet that you're actually standing here? And how does it feel when you envision what was happening before that your ancestors perhaps contributed to? So the healing work part of that, I think there's a disconnect there right now where we're at with these acknowledgements. We need to start embodying it. And then walking, we always speak about walking the good way the good path, which means we, we walk in the good way, you walk the red road. And I think that means just acknowledging the harm and doing some work every single day, which you help folks do in what you're offering. And I think that's such important work. That's how we're going to make change. We are called to do more than acknowledge lands. And I thank Asha Frost, Indigenous Medicine Woman, for sharing her wisdom in episode six. Now, We move to Paul Zelizer, who was featured in episode nine. Paul is the founder of Awarepreneurs, a global community of social impact entrepreneurs. I asked Paul about navigating conflict when it comes to coalition building, and he shared some of his tips and who he's learning from. And I want to draw attention to something he said about doing the inner work. Too often, people make excuses as to why they can't work at becoming anti-biased or anti-oppressive. They'll say it's my sensitivities or my income or my need for peace or my need for unity. Listen to what Paul says about this. There's times when we can't do, if you're like in an incredibly intense trauma healing process or you're like, caring for an elderly parent who's on their way out. Okay, you get a pass. You just had a baby. All right, maybe this isn't the time to put a time and energy, you know, it's your third kid, right? Or like COVID-19, like 
totally wiped out your financial well-being and you're not sure how your family's going to eat, you get a pass. If you've got like the basics taken care of, not like getting a new car, (laughs) if you have transportation and food and a roof over your head and you honestly are in any way a moral creature and you're like thinking about it's time to think about more than this comes from my collaborator here in New Mexico, Genevieve Chavez Mitchell. She's always talking about we got to move out of the way, away from me, mine to we and ours. Me, mine is not, that's what got us into this mess. And there is no caring or ethical way to live a life in this time that I can see focused on me and mine to a large degree. The only way to live an ethical life that I know on this planet, what's happening right now, is to think about we and ours and the children and the future generations. And if that's not on your radar, like I'm not going to like, like go do your life, but get out of the way. Lisa's got work to do. I got work. My job is to go find the we, the ours, the future generations and say, what do we do? It's a mess. Typically at the midway point in each episode, I share a patron message. I don't have one to share in this episode. So instead, I'd like to extend a deep gratitude to some of my longest supporting patrons who have lovingly recorded messages that I included in episodes 1 to 12. I want to thank Jill Prescott, Julie Parker, Miranda Wildman, Elizabeth Purvis, Candice Cheza Zoller, Rebecca Borucci, and Sarah Torino for sharing how the inner field trip has helped them become more aware of their once unconscious biases and the way that that awareness helps them to have better relationships, better boundaries, and a better sense of how they can protect their energy while standing on the side of justice. One thing I want to point out is that the inner field trip is not for everyone. And I would prefer that you sample the inner field trip experience without becoming a patron just so that you can see whether or not this is for you. I invite you to go to www.exploringbias.com to try out Inner Field Trip using the nine free writing prompts on that page. You see, the Inner Field Trip is a movement. It's not something you dip your toe in. I'm not looking for people to join my community on Patreon to see how it feels. This is not a revolving door. You see, when I go hiking, before I commit to gear on the longer hikes, so maybe it will be a hike that will take me five hours or a day, I want to first test the gear on short walks around my neighborhood or on paved trails that are close by. Maybe it's a pair of boots, maybe it's a top, maybe it's a coat. And questions I ask myself on shorter walks is, am I sweating too much? Do I feel cold? Am I aware of the boots on my feet? (laughs) If you're highly sensitive, you totally get that question. Is there a sense of discomfort I'm feeling anywhere? So I test out my gear on shorter walks before I commit to using that particular piece of gear on longer hikes. And so this is the same with the inner field trip. There is a way for you to test out the gear without making the commitment to the longer quest. That's why if you go to www.exploringbias.com, 
you can test out the inner field trip experience using those free prompts. There are instructions on the page on what to do, and you can do one prompt a day over nine days. Then if it feels like something that you want to work on, if it feels like it aligns with your personality, then become a patron inside the community on Patreon. Now, the other thing I want to point out about Patreon and the community that has built up there is that not only is it a mission and a movement, but it's also based on creating deeper relationships. If you're joining because you expect me to deliver one new writing prompt a day or a week, then that's a transactional relationship and that is not going to work. I do not build the community on Patreon based on transactions. I based it on relationships. And so there are many people in my community on Patreon that have been supporting me since 2017, 2018. Sometimes there might be a financial matter which prompts them to leave for a little while, but they always come back. And why? Because we are forming a deep relationship. And when there are no prompts being delivered or when we're not doing the 10-day live quest that takes place two to three times a year, then your continued support as a patron in my community on Patreon helps to finance the production of this podcast. Because believe me, if I had to do this all by myself, I would have stopped a long time ago. But because of the contributions of my patrons each month, I'm able to pay really smart people to do the work that I don't want to do. Because I don't believe that we should be working on our weaknesses at all. I believe that we should focus in on our strengths and hire people, if we have the financial means to do so, to fill in where we're weak. Because whatever's in our yuck bucket, the things we don't want to do, that is life to someone else. And I'd prefer to spend good money hiring the right people to help me with the things I don't want to do so that I can remain consistent. And the last thing I want to say about the community on Patreon is I often get people who come along and they see it's $5 a month or $10 a month. And you could choose from four predetermined amounts. And I have some people say, oh, there must be another way for me to support you. I mean, $5 a month feels like it's not enough. Or I've had someone come up and say, oh, you know, with all the people following you, I'm surprised you don't have more people supporting you on Patreon. How can I support you? What can I do? And really, all you need to do is just become a patron. That's it. Because yes, $5 a month, $10 a month, depending on how much disposable income you have, doesn't seem like a lot. And especially with what you get in return, you might be feeling, eh, this feels like I'm taking and taking and taking. But that's the attitude of the dominant culture. It makes you believe that you are an independent You're an individual all by yourself. Because when you multiply $5 a month by hundreds and hundreds of patrons, then not only does it help me to pay for team members to help me with the areas where I don't want to spend my energy, but it also frees up my time so that I can focus on creative pursuits so I can continue to bring really great content to my patrons. So please release that idea that it's not enough. Release the idea that you need to do more. I have indicated what satisfies me. 
And what satisfies me is for you to become a patron, to understand you're joining a mission, and to be in communion with myself and other patrons as we continue on this path of becoming a better ancestor. And so if you know you're ready to become a patron, just go to www.innerfieldtrip.com, click on Join the Quest in the top menu, and there you'll find more information on how you can join the community. All right, so we covered highlights from episodes four, episodes one, number five, number eight, number two, and number six, and number nine. I want to now highlight a clip from episode three, where I shared a three-step process to take aim at your unconscious biases. I shared why so many make mistakes when doing the inner work, because they start with the A in aim, then they jump quickly to the M skipping over the critical step of the I in AIM. In this episode, I also share how I came up with the inner field trip concept. Listen in. At the time, I called my process the contemplative methodology. I think that's about eight or nine syllables. And I didn't really like it but it was the only thing that I could think of to explain my process. What I do with my process is I create writing prompts to help us unpack biases. Some mistakenly call me an anti-racism educator, but I'm not because my writing prompts and my body of work doesn't just focus on the issue around skin color privilege and racism. What I do is I look at the traits that uphold the dominant culture, that uphold a culture of oppression. And I develop writing prompts to help us to question and interrogate the ways in which we uphold those various systems or those various traits. So towards the end of 2019, after I had gone on a multi-city tour, where I went to different cities throughout North America, Canada, and the United States, and brought my workshop to different cities that I visited. I was sitting back, and it was December 2019, and I was planning to go to Australia and New Zealand and bring the workshop to different cities in those two countries. And so at that point, because I had gone on tour, I realized that I loved the idea of visiting different locations. I also, while on tour, I took my camera and I started telling and capturing stories of me as I was on tour. And of course, I loved meeting my patrons in person in each of the cities. I like to say that although I missed home, I didn't feel homesick. And although I still had my sights on Australia and New Zealand, the fires that started in Australia put a stop to my plans. I didn't feel it was appropriate for me to go and do a tour while Australians were focused on saving their biodiversity from these fires. And so I put a pause on planning my trip to Australia and New Zealand and watched with interest as to what was happening with these fires. And then COVID. Oh boy, COVID-19 definitely put a stop on 
everything as countries started to close their borders. And when Prime Minister Trudeau put out a call saying, if you are Canadian, it's time to come home. I knew to myself, hey, this is not the time to be planning trips around the world. And some of the places I wanted to visit is I wanted to go to a place called Hogan's Valley in Vancouver. That is the site of what some consider to be Canada's Black Wall Street. On the opposite side of the country, I wanted to visit Preston, Nova Scotia. Preston was actually the site of the first wave of Jamaicans who were forcibly removed from the island of Jamaica to Preston, Nova Scotia, as part of a treaty that was signed with the British militia. There were also spots throughout the United States that I want to visit where some of my ancestors had done some significant things. I have an ancestor who was part of a committee that financed or made funds available for a lawsuit that a gentleman with the last name Plessy had brought forward against the Louisiana train system in order to challenge its segregation of the train system. And so it was a deep, deep plan that I had of bringing the classroom into real-life locations. I also had a vision of doing other field trips to museums that for some, they don't have anyone in their family that would want to go to different museums commemorating and remembering different events throughout American history. And so I was going to plan those type of trips and we would go there together and, of course, do reflective writing afterwards to reflect on our experience. So COVID-19 changed everything. And as I sat here wondering what was next, And how I can bring a field trip experience to my patrons knowing that we just could not travel. That's when I started to ruminate in my head and through reflective writing started to dig deeper and take a look at, okay, if I can't do a physical field trip, maybe I can do a virtual one. And then as I sat there and reflected more, I said to myself, but we don't do virtual field trips. We actually do inner field trips. And I sat there and I thought, and the more I repeated inner field trip, inner field trip, inner field trip, the more I realized that I had landed on the phrasing that captures exactly what we do. Very interesting, very interesting. That if it wasn't for the pandemic, then my thought process would not have gone where it went to then develop inner field trip as the catch-all name for the process that we do. The inner field trip is now a registered trademark Talking about naming things, episode seven features Kelly Deals, feminist marketing consultant. She spoke about the power of naming things and why this is a social justice issue. Kelly shared some wisdom about white fragility and why it's a sign of misplaced loyalties. And she shared the ways in which you can protect the process you name without having to hire a lawyer, as I did, or register the word as a trademark, as I did. And this is a really beautiful concept so that you can prevent yourself from being erased. Listen in. So many times I've raised the word intersectional and used it as an example of culture making. And told the story of Dr. Crenshaw and people are like, oh, I didn't know she invented that. And it's like, that pains me. 
That is her contribution, right? And there's so many of us who aren't compensated with money and fame and what have you. But one of the ways we can compensate people for that intellectual and emotional labor is by calling their names and calling that forward into our lineages. So one of the things I recommend to people to do is if you come up with a name, I don't say that you should go trademark it, though certainly that's your prerogative. You can go do that. But what I say is you should immediately write a blog post about it and prominently display the date. And so all roads lead back to that. And if anyone ever did a search to see when words were being used or the frequency with which words were being used, you would be the origin, right? You'd be the source of that word. That doesn't mean that people won't erase you. They will. They 100% will. But you do have to leave some breadcrumbs for people to find you and use it regularly and train people around you that it's a justice practice and a feminist practice to cite each other. And honestly, it helps us learn and build knowledge because that's how things don't get forgotten. We have to remember them forward by calling people's names. And it is actually a personal issue for me right now because there are people who are erasing me from something that I invented called feminist copywriting. And it pains me enormously. And it is what happens to people who don't have dominant identities. And it's even what you see in people who do have dominant identities. White men often go into the fringes and take a concept or take an entire body of work and rebrand it with a different name and get very rich off of it because that's valuable cultural language transmissions. But I would just say it's not possible to make it so that people won't appropriate your work. But what we have to then do as a culture collectively is start making it a practice to call the people's names who've influenced us, which is exactly what you did at the beginning of this podcast deliberately, right? We're calling people's names. That's how we call wisdom forward. That's how we carry wisdom. That's how we teach each other. We just talked about the importance of names. We can't even know something unless we have language for it. So this is how we build whole traditions of wisdom is with those languages and by giving honor to the people who've contributing those building blocks of language so that we can speak that language of justice. We have to cite each other. I just love the strategy that Kelly shared. The clip you heard is from episode seven featuring Kelly Deals, feminist marketing coach. It's a beautiful strategy, especially if you want to offer a phrase into the marketplace and avoid being erased, as Kelly spoke about regarding Kimberlé Crenshaw. In episode 10, I shared the five tools I use to protect my mental wellness. Talk therapy or seeing a therapist is the most well-known tool to use to improve mental wellness. And there are quite a few more. So I share those additional tools and I also share the key difference between overgiving and generosity. You can hear that in episode 10. I also share the root as to why we tend to overgive. Listen in. If you identify as highly sensitive or a deep feeler, one of the reasons why we people please is to hide our sensitivities. If most of your life you've heard nothing but, oh, don't be so shy, you're such a cry baby, why are you so sensitive? 
then you begin to associate sensitivities with something really bad. So as a way to mask our sensitive selves, what we do is we people please. And we give too much of our time, our resources, our money, and so on in an effort so that people can appreciate our doing instead of our being. That if someone criticizes your offer of either working or doing a task, that you're shielded from that critique being of you and your personality. Because being critiqued about who you are hurts really deep. But if someone criticizes the task that you've done, then there's some sort of barrier or protection against the critique of you. But at the end of the day, instead of feeling safe and secure and supported, we instead, over years and years and years of people-pleasing, we begin to feel tense, tired, and trapped. Now let's move to episode 11 featuring James Olivia Chu Hillman a facilitator who helps us to be in right relationship with each other. James Olivia helps us to understand the dynamic between educator and pupil in anti-oppressive, anti-bias, and anti-racism circles and why contempt shows up. Listen in. You put someone on a pedestal and end up on that pedestal, they are not fully human because they're your priest or your whatever. They're on a pedestal. And in order to remove them from the pedestal, it can't just be, I mean, it can, but for some people, it won't be just the value of our existence is same, same. And we are now you know, operating from healthy self-esteem. It's you're still up there on that pedestal, but now you're scary. You're an ogre. You're not here to save me. You're here to hurt me. So that's where the contempt comes in, right? We're getting into the juicy stuff. (laughs) I love it. Juicy. It's a self-contempt. It's the contempt of, you must know more than I do. You're asking me to make a decision that overrides my own knowing and my own sovereignty. And so rather than just own, like you phrased it as giving away power, that's exactly what it is. Rather than own, Hey, I have a disagreement. I have a difference. I don't believe that what you are illuminating is truly the right choice for me in this moment. And rather than take responsibility for making a decision that I'm afraid will disappoint or anger you, I will blame you and call you wrong. And now I'd like to highlight the last conversation in this series. That was with Layla F. Saad, best-selling author of Me and White Supremacy. She gave insights into her lineage and what it means to be a woman from the West living in the East. I've always marveled about Layla's boundaries, especially as her thought leadership grew. And I asked her about that as she grappled with the harm someone with wealth and skin color privilege caused her. Listen in. Having white privilege is one thing. Having extreme wealth privilege on top of white privilege is a whole other thing. And there is a level of entitlement and lack of empathy that comes from being in that space that I really think that people who are in that position need to do very, very deep work within themselves to be aware of 
the ways in which they're causing harm that they don't even realize. That it's not just enough to pay lip service to the work, but you have to really see that I hold immense privilege and the added layer of then being a public person, right? And people assuming that you shouldn't have boundaries, that they should be able to have access to you and that them offering you their platform is a favor that they're doing you as opposed to a great gift that they get to receive. But it's so critical that when, I mean, for anything in life, you need to have strong boundaries, but especially if you consider yourself introverted, you are affected by energies, you're stimulated and can get overstimulated so easily. Yeah. It's so important to have these boundaries in place. And that was best-selling author of Me and White Supremacy, Layla F. Saad, talking about the need to have strong boundaries in episode 12. And that's a wrap. I trust that these highlights will help you as you navigate episodes 1 to 12. Some great gems, great conversations, and great guests. I'm thankful to be in communion with each one. As I close, thank you for tuning into episode 13, the best of episode of the Inner Field Trip podcast. For more information about all the guests mentioned in this episode, head on over to www.innerfieldtrip.com and click on the menu item called Episodes. My name is Lisa Renee Hall. Stumble bravely.